This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by Audible.com. If you would like to support this podcast and start a 30-day trial membership, visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Season 11, Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses Q&A on Horror. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. And I'm behind you. <laughs> hey. And we also Why have my voice. That voice gets me every time. I know, I love that. Hey, Steve's back. Yes, uh, he had never left. Are He's been sure? living in my basement for the last three weeks. Oh, I think after this, we will finally be rid of oh, him. Oh, man. Q&A on Horror, you have asked your questions of us, and we are going to answer them. But... This is the last podcast we're doing in a long stream, so I'm not sure if any of the answers will be what you want to hear. There's chocolate pie waiting oh, for Oh, it's going to end badly. Start with the questions, though. <laughs> All right. Darcy asks, if I want to make something ordinary, like peanut butter, terrifying, without coming off as silly, how do I do that? A lot of it has to do with the character's reaction to it. Most mm. of it has to do with the character's reaction to it. Um, and within that, what you're going to be looking at is the, the specific words that you're using. So you don't describe the peanut butter as, you know, beautiful tan and shiny. You mm. describe it as, you know, muddy brown and slimy or a sheen of oil on the on it. Starting to separate. Starting to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The character walks into the kitchen. The character knows that her sister's baby is deathly allergic to peanuts. Yeah. And somebody has been making peanut butter sandwiches on the counter, and she can smell the peanut, and she can see the smears everywhere. Even and it's worse. it's all death. We've had this one because you see little handprints and know that the brother and sister have, have had peanut it. butter, and they are now, and now running somewhere toward their- in the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, this is uh, one of the- Basically, the first principle that I talk about when I teach classes on how to scare people is that familiar things start acting in an unfamiliar way. Mm. Go and watch the scene in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where the aliens show up at the house and it's all just like vacuum cleaners going by themselves and record players starting without anyone pushing the buttons. Absolutely normal household objects. It is one of the most terrifying scenes ever put on film. That's a very much a haunting. Darcy, you should have picked something Less scary than peanut yeah. butter. That but, was easy. But <laughs> I, I just have to say that that this is, again, very much about the character's reaction to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Because in Mary Poppins, things start going by themselves, and it's wonderful and magical because yeah. that's the way the characters are reacting to right. it. Um, soundtrack also. Make sure your book has a good... No. <laughs> um, all right. Jasmine has an excellent question. I love the phrasing of this. What is your personal line between good horror and gornographic? Gornographic. <laughs> Nice. Oh, g- 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 Gornography. I like Gornography. Gornographic as a word. <laughs> and as a thing. I, um, Does it change the character? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, it comes down to, you know, what is the purpose? Yeah, what's the use and, of and, it? And what is, what is the audience reaction? You know, did I put mm-hmm. this bloody splash of whatever into the book because that makes it scarier or just because that makes it more tense or more exciting or whatever. You know, how am I using those elements? Now, I will say, I want to kind of push you guys on this one because I think some people really like this. I've never seen the movie Evil Dead, but people I know who love it 
What they love about it is the over-the-top gore. Is that a separate thing from the horror, or is that an enhancement of the horror? What is it that they're enjoying about the over-the-top gore in a film like that? What what they're enjoying, at least what I'm enjoying in a movie like Evil Dead, is the combination of it. Mm-hmm. Because we could run down a list of, you know, allegedly horror movies that are really just, you know, gore. Here's a splash of blood. Here's a bunch of dead bodies. Uh, Rob Zombie makes these kind of movies all the time. They're not really frightening. They're not horrific. They're just gross. And there's absolutely an audience for that. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you've got movies like The Others that have no gore in them at all but are terrifying. And something like Evil Dead is using elements of both. Okay. And like that's the, what makes it effective. I like the question, you know, what is what is your personal line? Um, I watched uh, Django Unchained two weeks after, or maybe not two weeks, shortly after uh, Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at that final scene in which the walls are splashed with blood from a gunfight. And in my mind... I recontextualized that and felt nothing but dread and sickness and horror at a movie that was not necessarily shooting for that. And so the context that you put the reader in when you create this, you have some control of that, but what the reader brings to the party is incredibly important, and you don't have control over that piece. I think it depends on the medium. Are we talking about movies? Are we talking about books? We're talking about books specifically. Okay, because in... You know, my threshold for that line is far, far, far lower, say, in a film than it is yeah. in books. I will in say books, that, I can, yeah. I can, my brain can auto filter some mm-hmm. of the stuff out, or it can change it, like like Howard says. Um, for for me, like, like Dan says, that that gore has to serve a purpose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. either whether as whether as a promise of what's to come, or as making good on the promise you made earlier. Yeah, now if Tarantino had wanted me to feel what I felt, then everything done in that film was done exactly right. And and that's that's why it's that's why I bring it up as an example. Right. Uh, because you contextualize it correctly and so the next several questions people are really interested in this topic. So we're going to kind of stay on this gore sure. one because the next question is how do you avoid going too far? I.e. the second episode of Breaking Bad made me, this person, um, Brady, stop watching the entire series. Oh. That's too bad. That's it's so the greatest TV show ever. Um, first, before we get too far into the topic of gore, the thing we have to say, because it seems like our listeners are, are mm-hmm. conflating this, yes. gore and horror are not the same thing. Right. Yep. You do not need any gore. You don't need blood. You don't even need death to tell an effective horror right. story. And that is part of the problem that horror has as a genre. When I tell people yeah. I'm a horror author, the first things that come to mind are either 80s slasher movies mm-hmm. or 70s-era Stephen King-possessed demon child movies. I get the same and reactions. that's not what horror is anymore, and it's not what horror has to be. So don't force horror right. into that box. And we're talking about the genre distilled down. We're not talking about the bookstore genre even. No. We're talking about the genre distilled down. And, you know, Lovecraft is often brought up as a great horror writer. There are no body counts in Lovecraft books. That is one person's descent into madness almost always. That's terrifying for someone who's literate like me, who, like, the mm-hmm. loss of faculties in my own mind is the most terrifying thing I can imagine. Yeah, Love- I'm- Go ahead. I'm going to say that that there's actually a fairly simple answer to this question, mm-hmm. um, which is that remember that 
every reader is different. And also that readers come in big groups as well. So you need to think about who you're writing for. And the first person that you're writing for is yourself. So if it is too much for you, right. then it's wrong. If it's not too much for you, then it's okay. It's just that you have to know that that's the audience that you're writing for. Uh, most of the people who were watching Breaking Bad, who continued watching it, right. didn't have problems with and that in scene. in some ways, it's a good thing they put that scene in. Not having seen the show myself. Nor have I. Um, but it's, it's a good, good thing they put that scene in to indicate this is not a show that you will like. This mm-hmm. is a filter. This is, if this mm-hmm. is a, that is a good thing. So I'm yeah. actually going to put a pin in all of the other gore questions. There's like 15 more. We're not going to touch on this topic anymore. Um, Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And I actually, I'm going to stop us for the book of the week because, Dan, you are going to pitch I Am Legend to us. Yes. I Am Legend by Richard Matheson is, and I, I can say this with official backup, it is one of, if not the greatest uh, horror stories of of our age. Um, in fact, a few years ago at the World Horror Convention, it won the Stoker Award for Best Vampire Novel of the Century. Wow. Um, it's it's a fantastic story, basically. I mean, it's been made into a million movies, and, and you've probably seen half of them. But none of them actually get the story. And none of them story. actually get the story right. Yeah. But the, the basic premise is that the world has uh, been taken over by vampires and... There's one human left, and he is hunting them. And it, com- it flips vampirism and the vampire story on its head. It is uh, in equal parts tense and thrilling and horrific. Uh, it is absolutely fantastic, and it's also very short. Uh, it will not be a big investment of your time to read one of the greatest horror stories ever. Right. You can buy it on Audible for, like, you know, it's five hours long. Um, and so you can go pick it up there, listen for— five hours and get this amazing experience with a horror story if you're wanting to figure out how it goes. Yeah. And you can launch your trial at Audible, audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Uh, who narrates I Am Legend? His name Robertson? is Robertson Dean. Yeah, Robertson Dean. Outstanding. All um, right, next question. In movies, horror is often communicated through subtle incidental things like lightning, sound, and music. How do those things transfer into the written word? Someone who's been reading my mind about having a good soundtrack. How do you get these things across in your books? For me, it's all little details. It's, it's mannerisms in the character. It's getting in their head early and often and understanding what it is that makes them fearful. Uh, earlier, Dan talked about, um, you know, going, or, well, both Howard and Dan talked about going into a flashback and seeing how they react in a situation and then seeing that situation played out later and knowing that they're going to make a terrible, awful decision, and they can't help it. Um, those yeah. sort of little, those little mm-hmm. details and those things that in terms push of it things forward. that you can do in a book that you can't do in a movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I I start with the details, like you know, like you're talking about, and then on my editorial pass, I look at word choice and rhythm to try and create 
a song, a you know, a dirge, a a something that resonates with me in a scarier way than than the words I originally picked. And I, I can't give you any examples of that, but I do it every time as I turn the screws on individual syllables for maximum effect. For me, it's all about how many words I use too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what you need to do is look at what purpose, what function do those sound cues in a movie have? Mm. And really what they're designed to do is to put you on edge uh, because you're in a normal setting, but why is that cello suddenly playing? Why, <laughs> why is the lightning flashing? You know, what's that weird shadow in the corner of the screen? And you can add those into a book by, uh, you know, I talked earlier about making familiar things become unfamiliar. First, you have to establish what familiar is. Make us comfortable in a setting and then change some small aspect of it. And it will have a very similar effect to that weird, oh, all of a sudden the creepy cello's playing. I know something bad is about to happen. Read the poem, The Bells. Hmm. The pose, uh, The Bells, and, and look at the way he uses sound to make you hear things uh, and and feel things about the bells and then figure out how to do that with everything else. So, next question I think is also very interesting. Um, Nicole asks, for someone who has written similar genres to, hor- to horror, thrillers and suspense, what would be the best way for me to start edging into writing a horror story instead? So I don't write horror very often, um, and usually I only write it when someone asks me to. Mm. Um, What I find is that the difference for me between writing something that is scary and writing something that is specifically horror, um, and a lot of it is thinking about who my audience is going to be so that I'm Mm -hmm. writing it for people who want that. Um, But a lot of it comes down to, for lack of a better word, the atmospheric details that I'm putting in. that that from the very first sentence that I have to make sure that the the kind of language that I'm using is um, darker and more I keep using the word visceral, mm-hmm. but that uh, you know instead of describing the perfect rose bush that I'll focus I'll choose to focus on the uh, the petals that are starting to to wilt on the rose bush. So that I'm I'm shaping the reader's expectations about where it's going to go. And then the other thing that I do is that I, I look at what am I afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I'm writing, I, I kind of pay attention to, um, to whether or not I'm starting to make my own. Like if I'm pushing back in my seat, mm-hmm. um, then that's... Then you know yeah. that <laughs> something's going wrong. Procedurally... Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Procedurally, the one that was the the trick that was most useful for me, and it was when I did the first uh, Space Eldritch piece, was having beta readers who like horror and understand horror who could read this and who could tell me, "Okay, this is good, but you f- you flinched here, you relieved tension too soon, mm-hmm. you know, you you know, stop backing away from it." Uh, you know, I kept asking, "Is he gonna? Is he gonna?" And then you didn't, and you need to. Uh, find beta readers who love horror and try to write horror for them. And they can let you know what you're doing wrong. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the The first thing that I wrote that was really horror, horror is a story called Serbo in Vitro Ujo, which I will not let my mother read. Mm. Um, and 
there was a scene that I got to and I, f- I faded to black because you could tell that the bad thing was going to happen. So I didn't need to show it, which is the way I would normally approach that. Mm. And, and I had to write the scene because you actually have to live that moment with the character. Um, Dan, you had something? Yeah, I want to, specifically as someone who has been writing thrillers or, or mysteries, like the, the mm-hmm. question asker, what I want you to do in that case is to, you know, come up with your great new thriller plot and then find a way to force the character into a horrible decision, mm. into a moral compromise or an outright awful thing, and then build your plot around some way to get them there to where that's the only choice they can make. And that, even without, you know, whatever trappings of horror, that by itself will add a bunch of horror to the story. Okay. Plus you have to deal with the consequences to Exactly. That. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited for the journey this writer's about to embark on. <laughs> no, because uh, seriously, learning, learning to not flinch from the bits that you've been flinching from is hugely educational as a writer. I loved it. So I'm going to end us with this last question. I'm actually going to point it at Steve and Dan specifically. Um, And I want Steve to take the first crack at it if he can. Um, There are several questions in here that I'm going to conflate into one about showing the monster. Okay. The question I'm going to turn it into is, how do you decide when to show the monster? And how does it change your story once you have? Well, for me, showing the monster... I don't, there, there's this, there's this big so-called rule that you can't ever show the monster. And, and I don't agree with that. Uh, I think you can show it if you want to, it just has to be in, it has to be in service to your plot. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in my book, I show a monster right from the very beginning. And that isn't because I want you to, I, I want you to be scared by how scary it looks or whatever. It's because I want you, I want to promise you that I'm going to make good on this monster and that this monster is going to just cause havoc and, and the damage it can do and the horrible things it can cause. Um, and it isn't just the monster, it's everything surrounding the monster, you know, what it can, you know, all of the, the horrible things it can enact upon people, um, the way it smells, the way it, the way it mm-hmm. sounds. Mm. Um, so that's... Yeah, so I, I would say... There are two rules. When do you show the monster? First of all, you show the monster after you've prepared the reader to be scared by it. Mm-hmm. And two, when it will cause the maximum amount of harm to the story. And the way that you prepare the reader for that monster is you have to pick one of two directions. The reason that there's this kind of unspoken rule Steve was talking about that you don't show the monster is because once you've shown the monster, you've taken away that sense of unknown and mm-hmm. you've made it concrete. And now it's not a mystery anymore. It's just, uh, well, how do we kill this thing? And so the way that you get around that so it's not a problem is A, you make the monster something different than we were expecting, Mm -hmm. or B, you make it far worse than we're expecting. Jaws is a great example of this because it's a shark, and eventually we're going to have to see the shark. So early in the movie, they show us a shark. They drag out a dead shark right on the dock, and they get their picture taken with it, and it's bloody, and it's gross, and it's huge. And when we see the real monster later in the movie, it's five times bigger and so much worse than that first shark prepared us for. And it's effective because in our head we say, oh, well, I know what a shark looks like. I've seen one already. But the one we actually see later is so much worse. All right. That's all the time we have. 
Um, but Dan is actually going to give us some homework. All right. We gave this homework to one of our listeners. We're going to give it to all of you. We want you to uh, plot out a story and build an outline that will force your character to make a horrible choice. Force them to do something they shouldn't do, to compromise themselves morally, to do whatever awful thing, and then build it so that that's the only choice they can make when the situation arrives. All right. Well, thank you again to Steve Diamond. Thank you. Let's um, also mention Residue, his book, which you can get at fine bookstores everywhere, but mostly Audible and online is your best bet, right? That is the best bet. Um, And you guys are out of excuses. Now go right. (laughs) This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 